minutes. Let me run over some of the announcements. Uh, number one, um, we went to see the film last night. Several people did. How many of y'all went to see Route 60, the biblical highway? Several of you who don't want to admit it. You know, I won't quit recommending anything to y'all. You know, two or three of you follow my recommendations. A pastor does not like that, okay? This is this was a very significant film for a lot of reasons, and since you haven't seen it, I'm not going to go into it because you wouldn't know what I was talking about. But that's uh, it's very significant. I'm going to be writing a film review of it for the Chafer Journal. They're going to we're coming out with our first journal in about ten years, uh, probably by the, hopefully by the first of September. Anyway, uh, it was it was very good from a lot for a lot of reasons, and what they do would probably surprise you. And it was good, it was good. So that was that was good. Uh, check the website, which is route sixty dot. Com, I think, or is it dot org? Dot org, okay. Uh, com, okay. Route sixty dot com, and they've got you know you can go there and you can find out if it's going to have an extended stay because because the uh, one I went to was just about sold out. I mean I think there were a few seats that when I got my tickets there were just a few seats available. Everything else was xed out. And so a couple of people didn't show up, but there were there were others. It's it's really really good, and they show a lot of places that uh, that most people can never get to on a tour group. And I've taken my tour groups to all but two of them, and I've been to all but one of them. So anyway, it was it was very good. And uh, Scott Stripling, what's interesting is, see, all these things come together. So if you miss the things I recommend, then when we have guest speakers, you don't always bring to the table the baggage that you should be should have packed. You understand? So Scott Stripling, who's the director of Shiloh Excavation, and who was responsible when he talked to Aaron Lipkin, who spoke to us back at the end of our, uh, it was right after 4th of July, about the Joshua altar. And they discovered the, uh, the curse tablet that, that of these places that Mike Pompeo and, um, David Friedman, the former ambassador to, U.S. ambassador to Israel went to, one of them was Joshua's altar and the other one Shiloh. And why are these places so significant for right now? You don't know it now. So, see, I'm reprimanding you. When I recommend something, it's not just because I like flapping my ear, my, my mouth, and I heard something that might be good. It's that this is, they have significant information in these things that, that we should all know about as believers if we're going to be equipped for evangelism, equipped for the work of ministry. So that's important. So if you get a chance to see it, if they extend it, go see it. Um, we're having the starting uh, in two weeks, September 29th to October 9th, the Fort Bend County Fair evangelism event. Training's been going on. Continue to pray for Jeff Phipps. He had uh, an infection that went into this hip replacement that he had, had to have some additional surgery. But so far, I think he's doing well, but he's still in the hospital from what he told me the other day. Uh, Mitch Glazer will be here Thursday, October the 5th. And Builders of Israel will be here for the Evangelism and Apologetics Seminar. 
And today, Raleigh, uh, excuse me, uh, David uh, has a podcast, and we will be putting that up because uh, we got what I recorded this morning, and it was about the rapture. And so this is um, uh, something that he and the past, uh, pastor who's coming for that evangelism event regularly do. And so you ought to pay attention to uh, to that particular podcast, good source of information. And uh, anyway, we recorded that this morning. It's just audio. You can listen to it while you're driving down the car. Instead of looking at your phone, you can listen to your phone. Um, and then uh, our annual ch- uh, church picnic is coming up October October the 20, 21st. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we go to God's word tonight and continue our study on the flood, let's uh, take a few moments of silent prayer to confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you in prayer, that we can uh, trust you with the requests that we bring before your throne of grace. Uh, We do not know how to pray as we ought, as Paul says in Romans 8, but God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Father, we have uh, a thanksgiving for the work that's been done so far in the last two or three years that Mark and Renee Perkins have been in Tahiti. You've opened up a lot of doors for them. They just went to an island on Howe. And it's one where uh, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, and Mormonism, uh, you know, branches are ha- have a profound foothold. So, Father, uh, they had a tremendous ministry there, and we pray that you would continue to give them these open doors and provide the financial, logistical, personnel, resources they need to expand their uh, their ministry. We continue to pray for David Dunn. He has several serious uh, issues that need to be resolved, and we know you know what they are, and we don't need to mention them, but we pray that you would resolve those uh, for them, and not the least of which is providing a path to uh, a heart transplant. Uh, Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might continue to be diligent in our study of your word, our focus on your word, and making the study and application of your word a priority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the fifth lesson still because I inserted uh, some uh, study material on the angelic revolt that I think is very, very important at the beginning of our study of the uh, fifth lesson. That sort of put us off a little bit because that took almost a whole, a whole hour two weeks ago. So we are continuing to look at the flood, some fascinating information I'm going to share with you tonight, and then attacks on the flood history, because it's under attack. The uh, world out there does not believe the flood was real. They do, it does not believe there was a worldwide flood. It does not believe uh, that um, 
Uh, Noah was a historical character. They believe it was all myth, just like uh, other, uh, just like flood legends in pagan cultures. They believe this is just a flood legend, but the the differences are are really profound. Uh, the the details. Uh, God is in the details, and we have too many good details in the Scripture that we need to deal with. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this evening. Here's our timeline. We're not going to go through it again tonight, but you guys be rehearsing this. This is very important. Uh, I'll tell you about some other things going to be uh, that we're going to relate to this. And so uh, we just go through the whole thing and just be reminded of it. We have in the Old Testament the uh, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Then we have the Exodus, and then the conquest, we're marching, and then uh, we have the period of the kings, the United Kingdom first, and then the divided kingdom. And then we have uh, the exile, where because of idolatry, Israel is kicked out of the land. So there we have uh, 11 Old Testament events, and I went through those in about 20 seconds. And you've got, to, you've got the framework for understanding the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me tell you one little reason this is important. If you have, and I know many of you do have Jewish friends, and if you talk to them, they don't know anything about the Old Testament. They don't study. The rabbis don't study. If you're a rabbi and you go to seminary, what do you study? This is a quiz. I think I heard somebody say the Talmud. That's what they study. They study the Talmud. They study the Mishnah, which are rabbinical commentaries that were written after the New Testament period. The Mishnah was first written down. It probably reflects oral, oral tradition for many years, and, and accurately so, uh, for probably many centuries, three or four centuries at least, prior to uh, 200 when it was codified. And then you have the Talmud uh, that was written about th- three centuries later that is a commentary on the Mishnah. And that's what they studied. They don't know the Bible. One of the things I'm going to talk about Thursday night is that we listen to a rabbi, and I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want it transcribed, because if it's transcribed, then Google's going to pick up on it, and I don't want to have that people searching, because he's very popular. So I don't want people who search on his name ending up on Dean Bible Ministries' website and you know creating problems for Friends of Israel. So anyway, so we listened to this rabbi, and uh, it was very clear because of some things he said. For example, he said, have you ever wondered why God put us into a world with all these problems and all these troubles? What's wrong with that? Do I have to go back to lesson one in Interlock to start all over again? Did God put us in a world with a lot of trouble and pain and suffering? No, he didn't. He put us in a perfect world. And then a little while later, he mentioned that that Cain and Abel were both born in the Garden of Eden. Um, this is one of the foremost rabbis in the uh, Lubavitcher or the Kavad movement, very conservative in terms of Judaism. But see, they don't know their Bible. Extremely well educated. They, they, he is the he is the big rabbi on YouTube, and they call it YouTube. And he's got hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube. Okay, doesn't know the Bible. In fact, three of the men asked, asked specific questions related to a biblical thing, and he was just like, 
deer in the headlights. So it's important that when you're, if you're talking to Jewish friends, to encourage them. Have you ever read through just the the, the Torah? Uh, read, read it through on your own, know what it believes. I mean, if you're, especially if it's somebody who's not observant. question I want to ask is, so you don't believe in the Old Testament? Hmm. Have you ever read it? So how can you say you don't believe something you've never read? What they don't like is what the rabbis have been telling them. That's what they disagree with. So that, anyway, that's important. That's getting beyond this. So we have 11 events to hang the Old Testament on. And then what I'm going to try to do, because this is true for a lot of Christians as well, is do one of our Light from the Light um, videos that probably be a little longer than the other one, ones, but just going through the Old Testament and explaining what is going on here. Why do we have these... these um, uh, genealogies and what's the flow and you read through some books and they're telling a story and it's history and you go all of a sudden you turn a couple of books later and it's all this poetry and you go a couple of books and it doesn't seem to have any kind of chronological flow and I'm confused. So I want to try to explain this, hit the high points so that in 35 or 40 minutes somebody can at least have a general map of the Old Testament so that when they read it, it, it can sort of make, begin to make sense with them. So that's why that's important. Then we come to the New Testament, and we have the birth of Jesus, and then the crucifixion, and then he's buried, and then he rises from the dead, then he ascends to heaven. Forty, um, ten days later, he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and that is the birth of the church. And the church is on the earth even till now, and ends with the rapture of the church, which we now have uh, identified and added to the uh, to the timeline here. The rapture of the church, which is followed by seven years of tribulation, seven, seven years of tribulation that ends when Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming. That is followed by the thousand-year kingdom, and then it's the great white throne judgment. Okay, now we've gone through all of the Bible. So lesson 5.3, third part of it, uh, we're going to, what we're going to, we, we finished up with last time, and I'm going to go back and add some more things tonight, is talking about the depth of the flood, the extent of the flood, and and uh, was it a local flood, uh, those kinds of issues, because a lot of people believe that. In fact, somebody was asking me some questions related to um, the 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 gap view, we, and I talked to, I've talked to you before about there's an old earth gap view and there's a young earth gap view. And one of the comments, he, he was just trying to figure this out because he was always taught the old earth gap view. And the problem with the old earth gap view is why do you have uh, long numbers? Why do we have to go with an old age? What is that based on? And there's a lot of material, scientific material. Most of it is dealing with a lot of physics. It's way beyond, and, and way beyond my my background and my ability to comprehend it. That deal with these these issues related to um, the ways in which dating mechanisms function and why they're wrong and that they are inconsistent, they give contradictory evidence. So there's no real solid evidence that the earth really is uh, uh, 
older than what the Bible claims. And if you're going to grant them that authority, you've already begun to compromise because you're not judging science by what the Bible says. And so that's that's very important. But what's interesting is all of these old earth gap guys, the 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 one who uh, started it in um, in Scotland, uh, the um, uh, theologian there, his name escapes me right now. I've mentioned it before, but from him to uh, uh, um, Pember, who wrote Earth's Earliest Ages, to uh, uh, several others, they all held to a local flood. Why would they hold to a local flood? Because you only have one, you have these multiple layers that are laid down by one cataclysmic event. It's either an ice pack in the period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, or it's the flood. You, you don't have evidence of two major worldwide watery cataclysms. You only have one. So you, if, if you're going to put that into the period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, what do you do with the worldwide flood? Well, you turn it into a local flood. And as we're going to see tonight, that just doesn't, doesn't fit, doesn't fit the, the evidence. So we're going to look at that and, um, why would you need to have an ark that's this big if it's just a local flood? Just herd the animals and you got a hundred years to get them out of the Mesopotamian valley. Uh, so you can easily get them to higher ground. So it can't, and, and we're going to go through that. Anyway, so we'll look at that. And how did these old earth ideas become popular? We'll talk about that a little bit. And then uh, the commentary provided by the Apostle Peter. And the emphasis here, this is why this is called interlocked, is we're going to New Testament passages that treat the Noah's flood as a literal historical event, exactly as it's written in Genesis. And so if you say that's all myth, then you're eviscerating several passages where Jesus affirms the, the, uh, the narrative of Noah, where Peter affirms the narrative of Noah, where it's mentioned by other writers of the New Testament. And so the Bible is interdependent. And if you start taking place and saying this really isn't true, then that affects other places in the Bible as well. The, everything hangs together or it falls apart. So we'll look at that and how all these teachings then became so popular for churchgoers today. Then we'll come back and wrap it up with four topics. A biblical perspective on the global flood, which includes how do we counterattack and how is the whole evolutionary old earth framework being counterattacked? Evidence for an ice age, how did that happen? And the the result of the flood is an unstable and changing climate. Now, of course, we don't know anybody who believes that the climate is changing, do we? So that's not really important. I'm being, I'm in a very facetious mood today. So what we've looked at is that there are five lessons in the global flood. First of all, grace before judgment. There was a 120-year grace period that, that of Noah's preaching, but before that, from the time of Enoch, which was about 800 years there's warning of a coming judgment. Uh, second, uh, God needs to determine who will be saved and who will be judged and what is the criteria. Uh, third, he demonstrates and shows as a picture of, of 
spiritual salvation is that there's only one way to salvation, and that's pictured by the ark. There's the only way to survive the flood, God's judgment, is the ark. And there's only one way into the ark. And uh, God, and it only had one door. And God closed that door, which is a picture of the sealing of the Holy Spirit in the church age. Then we have uh, the change. The global flood changed everything. I've got a short video to show on that. And then, um, so how, do, how are to be saved? It's always faith in the promise of God. That was a physical deliverance for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And it was by faith in God's promise that he would deliver them. And that is a picture of the fact that we are saved because we look at the cross and we believe that we are saved by Christ's death on the cross for, for us. So this is a picture of salvation. The ark is a picture of how God judges and saves, uh, and it is a type or a picture of how Jesus judges and saves. That's on page 10 of the lesson. So the question is asked, was there such a thing as a worldwide flood that destroyed the earth? Was it really historical? Was Noah a real person? Did this actually happen? Is this history? Or the 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 um, liberals... The religious liberals reject the authority of the Scripture. Who else rejected the authority of God's Word? Lucifer. And then even Adam. So they reject the, the literal historicity of the church, I mean of the Scripture, and, and deny that all of this is history. So one of the ways that we have evidence of it that is tainted, of course, because what it is, is the, the people have repeated the story from generation to generation without the correction from God, and so it morphs into different forms. You have a description of a, of a, of a flood in the Gilgamesh epic that's a, a, an, an Akkadian um, or Assyrian uh, story about, uh, and the no, Noah is Utnapishtim, and his ark is a cube. Well, a cube is not seaworthy. If you have a hundred, I mean, probably if you have 20 foot, 30 foot waves, a cube is going to roll. So people aren't going to do very well in trying to survive in a cube. So it's not seaworthy. But there have been nautical engineers uh, who designed ships who have said that the ark is incredibly seaworthy and could handle uh, these tsunamis that would be 150, maybe 200 foot high uh, with their waves. So you have these pagan accounts that are the result of the descendants uh, of Noah. We looked at that last time. Now, the depth of the flood water and the duration of the flood is we began to look at that last time. We saw that the Scripture says that the water was over the mountains by at least uh, 15 cubits, which would be the standard cubit is about 18 inches, so that would be at least 22 feet. Now, remember, the mountains prior to the flood are not the same mountains that we see today. People always make these mistakes. The earth that then was perished, the land that then was perished, there were these huge tectonic plate shifts that changed the entire topography so that we can't look at the world out there today and say... Um, that was the way it was before the flood. This is a classic mistake because you'll have local flood advocates who will say, well, how in the world could Noah get all the, all the animals, 
onto the ark. They've got to travel a long way. How did they get there from Australia? How did they get there from North America and South America? Well, you're assuming that the land masses were identical before the flood is after because you've got a local flood. But if it's a worldwide flood that has these massive uplifts and these tectonic shifts, then the continent's completely reshaped. And so the world that then was, as Peter says, perished. And so you can't extrapolate from what it looks like today to uh, to back then. In terms of the depth, um, it says it was the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth in Genesis 7:19, under the whole heaven. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And if you go through and you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, you need to circle every word that is uh, uh, all or whole or every. And you'll these are repeated in every other verse just about to emphasize the, the, that the flood was worldwide. So here are some basic questions. Was the flood local or worldwide? If the flood was local, why did Noah need to build such an enormous ark? He could have just walked to the other side of the mountains, or he could have taken the animals to the other side of the mountains or the other side of the river or wh- wherever, but he could have taken uh, just you know a few months, and he could have moved away from the local flood. And what they usually set forth as a local flood is that there's a flood in the um, Mesopotamian basin. Okay, that's the area of modern uh, Iraq, where you have the Euphrates River that runs uh, somewhat through Syria and then Iraq, and then the, the Tigris, and that runs through Iraq. And there's this big flood and water, what? It goes downhill. So all he has to do is go to the high ground. But so why does he need to build an ark? Second, if the flood was local, why did God send the animals to the ark to escape death? They could have just uh, gone in another direction and gotten away from the floodwaters, and they would have survived. And why did he even have to save those animals? Because there were others like them in other locations that would have survived because there wouldn't have been a flood in other places on the earth. Third, if the flood was local, why was the ark big enough to hold all the kinds of land vertebrate animals that have ever existed? Now, we're going to address that. I'm not going to go to all the detail. There's a new book out. or It's not a new book. It was originally published in 2009 by Andrew Snelling, who is a well-known uh, creation scientist, and it's filled, I, I look through the appendices, and I can't read the, understand even a clue what the charts are talking about. I'm not a science guy, but this guy is. And what he has done is he's gone back and he's done an update on, he hadn't revised what Morris and Whitcomb did, he's just rewritten the whole to- topic in a book called The Genesis Flood Revisited. And it was the second edition came out in, um, last year in 2022, and it's huge. It's about this thick, and it's, it has almost the dimensions of my laptop. It's enormous, but he has lots of great up-to-date facts, facts and figures. So we'll talk about the updated views on how many animals uh, were on the ark. 
uh, I think this is fourth or fifth. If the flood was local, why would birds have been sent on board? I mean, birds can just migrate to the next continent. Why do they need to be on board? Uh, Next, if the flood was local, how could the waters rise to 15 cubits, which is 22 feet, above the mountains? Water seeks its own level. So if it's coming down from roughly Mount Ararat, which is located there at the border of modern Turkey, Iraq, and and, um, Armenia, if the flood was local, how could the waters rise to 15 cubits? You know, it could, if it rise, it goes up, it spreads out. And it's got to go up over, I think Ararat is 17 or 18,000 feet. So the water's going to get that high. It's going to cover, it's not going to be a local flood. If the flood was local, it would not have solved the problem of the corruption of the human race worldwide. That's the reason for the flood. His God is rebooting the human race, and he's wiping everybody out except for Noah and his family. So if it's not worldwide, it's not going to accomplish its purpose. Next, if the flood was local, people who did not happen to be living in the vicinity wouldn't be affected by it. So if it's only a local flood covering the Mesopotamian Valley then people who lived in Europe, people who lived in Africa, people who lived further west in the Middle East, people who lived in in India, Pakistan, China, they wouldn't have even known or cared. It's a judgment on sin. So God is judging the human race, not just a, a few people. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, 37 to 39, refers to the judgment of all men at the time of Noah. So Jesus took it as being literally true. And Jesus, see, this is the other thing. People who really say, okay, you got to throw that out. Then Jesus says this. See, that proves Jesus was just a man. He didn't know everything. It dominoes through other other things. Jesus can't be God and omniscient because uh, he validated uh, a legend that really isn't historically true. If the flood was local, God would have repeatedly broken his promise to never flood the earth again. And you see that in this little cartoon. If you can't read that, the older man is talking to his son and says, look at that beautiful rainbow. It's a promise from God that he'll never again flood the entire earth as he did in Noah's day. And his son says, well, my Christian college professor said that Noah's flood didn't cover the entire earth. And then his father or grandfather says, he told you it was just a local flood? And he said, that's what he said. And now you, the camera goes back, and you see them so, sitting on a rooftop as their house is flooded by a local flood. And the dad says, so he believes that God promised to never again send a localized flood. So here's the chronology of the flood. And um, it begins, Genesis 7:11. They enter the ark on the 10th day of the second month, and they wait seven days. And then it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, that began on the 17th day, a week a week later. So it starts on the 10th day of the second month. Start The rain starts on the 17th, 17th day of the second month. You have 110 days of rising waters. And this began... 
uh, and after 150 days, the ark rests. That's on the 17th. 74 days, the waters begin to decrease. See, 150 days is how many months? That's roughly five months that the water is swirling around the whole earth with incredible force. 74 days, the water decreases. That's two and a half months. And then the tops of mountains become visible. That's, that's important. They, they began, uh, that, that starts on about the 10th day of the 11th month. So for 40 days, they're, they, they, then they send out a raven. So 40 days is how long? That's a month and 10 days. Now, what's interesting is the raven doesn't really find anything. So seven days later, they sent out the first dove, and the first dove doesn't find anything. Then he sends out second dove, and then the third dove by the uh, 10th of the 12th month. So now we've gone from, let's see, the tops of the mountains becoming visible is on the 10th. So it's gone from, let's say, the uh, first of the 10th month to the first of the 12th month. So that's going about two months. The reason I make that point is the third dove comes back with an olive leaf, not an olive branch, but with an olive leaf. And studies show that it takes about four to six weeks for a new, uh, new, um, olive tree to begin to put forth its first leaf. It's still just barely out of the ground, but it'll put forth a leaf in about four to six weeks, not a branch. So it fits perfectly with what we know about olive trees. And then they offload the ark on the 27th day of the second month. So that's a year and a week, 371 days. That's a long time to be cooped up with, uh, with your family or with your in-laws or with your animals. But when God's protecting you, it's a great thing. So the size of the ark... It's massive, and it is uh, designed, it's long, it's uh, a long rectangle, and it is uh, waterproof, and so it can hold, it's about 450 feet long. I think it's about 50 feet wide, if I remember correctly. That is, that's amazing. It's long and narrow, but it can handle the everything. Now, the... Um, According to the standard of an 18-inch cubit, that would make the arc about 437.5 feet, so I was close with 450, 73 feet wide and 43 feet high. Since it had three decks, it has a total deck area of approximately 95,700 square feet, which is slightly more than the area of 20 standard college basketball courts. Its volume is uh, almost 1.4 million cubic feet, and the gross tonnage is uh, 13,960 tons, which puts it in the category of some of the larger uh, metal ocean-going vessels today. So in the notes, though, it has some statements that are really based upon what Whitcomb and Morris calculated in the Genesis flood. And they use boxcars, railroad boxcars, and they say that it would take, has a space carrying capacity of about 522 boxcars. 
boxcars are bigger today than they were in 1960. So we're going to get some updated, updated figures. And this comes out of Andrew Snelling's book, The Genesis Flood Revisited, Revised in 2022. So he says, this is my comment at the top. Uh, he, here he uses modern freight cars much larger than those in use in 1960. He says um, and that today, that's where the quote begins. I should have broken the paragraph there. Uh, today, using a sheep as the average size of animals. That's what Whitcomb and Morris did. They said that the average size animal is about the size of a sheep, so how many animals would fit inside of, of uh, 500, I think they had 522 um, boxcars. Yes, that's correct. We had to memorize that for a test in theology at one point. Um, so you have uh, now you have using the sheep, same animal as the average size, then 240 animals of the size of sheep uh, could be accommodated in a standard two-decked freight car. That's what you have today. So you didn't have two-decked freight cars back in the 1960. So they could handle 240 animals in one freight car. Thus, if there were as many as 16,000 animals, which when you don't look at the animals as species but as uh, uh, family, then you have fewer fewer numbers. I talked about that some last, last week. So they would fit into, if you had 16,000 animals, which is more than they think they had, they, it wasn't necessary to take that many, but that's the number they're going with based on work that a um, a, an engineer by the name of John Wood Morappi did a feasibility study of the ark based on modern um, intensive uh, uh, farming techniques and, and modern uh, zoology techniques uh, or modern zoo techniques, rather. Uh, and anyway, so he says, on this base, base of new calculations, if there were six, if there were sixteen thousand, which is more probably more than there were, they would fit into sixty-seven such freight cars, representing only a quarter of the carrying capacity of the Ark, which was equivalent to two hundred and seventy box cars. A lot of room left over. Why was there extra room for the people who rejected the single solution? See, there was room for them. There was room for a lot of them. In other words, all the animals would fit into less than one of the three decks of the ark. Furthermore, even if there had to be as many as 43,000 animals to be carried on the ark, then those animals could still fit into only 180 such railroad freight cars, which would represent two-thirds of the 270 freight car carrying capacity of the ark, meaning two of the three decks of the ark would have carried 43,000 animals. So the, the idea that well the ark can't put and they always they, if they use species that you've got to have you know several hundred thousand animals it's crazy. Wood Morappi has shown from a detailed analysis of the body mass categories into which these sixteen thousand animals would fit that the vast majority were small and even without allowing for large animals to be represented by juveniles or younger young young animals. Uh, the median size of the animals on the ark would have been the size of a small rat. See, it's not really the size of, that was being too conservative and too generous, saying it was the average size was a sheep. The average size of all these animals, including dinosaurs, okay, 
It's the size of a small rat. There's a lot of little bitty animals out there. So Woodmerapi's calculations show that only about 11% of the animals on the ark were substantially larger than sheep. It is therefore abundantly clear that with a few simple calculations, this trivial objection can be disposed of one for all. Now, Peter comes along in his commentary, and he talks about uh, what is going on today, that you have scoffers, uh, scoffers that come along. And these scoffers say, well, where's the promise? Where's the promise of his coming? Uh, the scoffers come and they walk according to their own lust. Notice they're, they're driven by their own lust patterns. And so they'll come in the last days walking according to their own lust. Now, when are the last days? The first question you should ask me is, are you talking about the last days for Israel or the last days for the church? The next question is, don't you mean that the last days of the church, then that's the entire church age because of the doctrine of imminency. So this this is in this church age. That's what, what he's talking about. And then they say, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus said he was going to come back. It's been 2,000 years. Well, where is he? Oh, you just believe those legends and myths because you're some fundamentalist. And their argument is since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, since, since way, way hundreds of thousands of years ago, everything continues as it did from the beginning. In other words, there's no cataclysms. Everything c- continues the same way. This is the principle embodied in uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the fundamental controlling principle in modern geology. Now, I understand that today now they are recognizing there must be cataclysms, so it's called punctuated cataclysms. But the general thing is we can then, if we measure a rate of decay, I'm going to tell you something that's not in the notes, but it's fascinating. If we can measure the rate of decay of something, let's say over the last 150 years, and if everything's continued the same, then we can extrapolate back to determine how old something is based on that rate of decay that we've been measuring. We can create a graph. So as, uh, the guy who, Tom Barnes, who was the head of the physics department at University of Texas of El Paso back in the 70s, and I heard him uh, deliver a lecture on this back in about 1978, and he had written a paper on this, that they've been able to measure the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere since the days of Lord Kelvin. So that's mid-1800s. So so for about at that time that he did this in the early 70s, it was about 120 or 130 years that they had data on measuring the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere. And so it was declining at a certain rate. And so if they took that rate as a constant and then extrapolated backward, they could determine how strong the Earth's magnetic sphere would have been in 10,000 B.C. What he discovered was in 10,000 B.C., the Earth would not have been able to support life at all because the pressure would have been too great. Twenty to 30,000 B.C., the Earth would have imploded. 
Well, that's interesting. Well, we are we believe that uniformitarian that really works with with carbon fourteen and with potassium argon, but it doesn't work with other things. They have to cherry pick the data, and a lot of the data just doesn't fit. And there are two. If you're a physicist and you understand all these complex issues related to decays and uh, all of these other things, then you can look up, uh, there are two books published by ICR in the 90s, 80s and 90s called The Rate Project, R-A-T-E, R period, A period, T period, E period. And uh, you have to search for them. They're out of print. And they were studies by, by scientists using the assumptions of uniformitarianism, and they looked at all of the dating mechanisms and everything and discovered that there were so many uh, inconsistencies and gaps in the conclusions that did not fit. More often, they never fit uh, anything in terms of an old earth. So the assumptions of uniformitarianism are, are, are fa- slowly falling apart because if they're not true at all, then we have no basis for saying that the earth is older than what the Bible claims. Uh, Peter says in verse 5, for this they willingly forget. It, it's it's their, uh, their volition. They're rejecting it. They're suppressing truth in unrighteousness, what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 21. This they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth was standing out of water and in the water. And that's talking about what happens in in the first part of Genesis where it says that God separated the waters above with the firmament from the waters below. And that's talking about the first day of of creation when God separates, separates the waters. By which, this refers to by which those waters that were above the world that then was existed perished being flooded by water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition or destruction of ungodly men. So uh, Peter is talking about three things. He's talking about the world that then was, that is the pre-flood world, the world that then was. Uh, perished. And then he says, the heavens and the earth which are now. That's the second category. And then there's a future, the, the day of judgment. So here's the chart that's in your notes. And here we have creation to the fall is a perfect world. These are not, these ages are not according to scale. Then you have the fall to the flood is the ancient world that perished. And then you have the present world, and it will end in a judgment of fire. And then there will be the final judgment. Righteous people will be saved. Ungodly people will be destroyed. And uh, evil will be completely dealt with. Here's another chart. So how, how the idea that the world has been the same since the beginning uh, since the beginning, became popular. How did this idea, the world has been the same since the beginning, how did that become uh, become so popular? And there's some really good information on this in your notes, and you should read this. It starts with a lawyer, a wealthy lawyer named Charles Lyell, 
and he is the originator of uniformitarian geology, which if you took any geology in high school or in university, this was what you were taught. It comes from Charles Lyell, and he states that his approach to geology was based on ignoring God and the Bible. He actually said, I want to free, um, free science from Moses. Many of these people were virulently anti-Christian and anti-Jewish. So he has um, taken this position. He's come up with an alternate view called uniformitarianism. Now, this really isn't the result of observational science. Observational science is what science is based on. The basic scientific method, which we went on before, is you formulate a hypothesis, and then you test it in the laboratory, and then if you can repeat the process under laboratory conditions and observe what is happening, it's observational, then you can go from hypothesis to theory, and then if this is repeated over time and space, then you can develop it eventually into a, into a law. So this, there's a difference between observational science and historical science, which is really just a philosophy. It is not based on anything that has ever been observed or can be repeated uh, in, the, uh, in the classroom. So he uh, starts off with rather modest ages for the earth, around 40, 50, 60,000 years old. But by the time you get into the mid-19th century, that's expanded to millions of years. Uh, which and which uh, Darwin absorbed and used that and expanded it so he could get enough time because their theory is given enough time, anything can happen. You can have a inorganic substance develop into something organic, in other something that has no life becomes something that has some some form of life. So this chart says that early Christians believed in biblical flood geology from the early church, Tertullian, Chrysostom, uh, Augustine. They all believed all the way up until the late 1700s. You do not find anybody who believes the earth is any older than what the Bible says. In uh, 1790 to 1820, you began the formal study of geology. Uh, Charles Lyell's dates are 1797 to 1875, and he promoted the uniformitarian idea of an old earth. And many people in the church decided it's science. You know, they proved it. No, they didn't. We have to believe them. So instead of holding to what the Bible says, they decided to either throw out the Bible or to somehow find evidence to make the Bible fit science. Now, this is a precursor of what happens by the time you get in the 20th century where all of a sudden Freud's ideas come along and he says that he is the authority on the soul. Well, the Bible says it's the authority of this, on the soul. But Freud hated Christianity. He hated the Old Testament. He's Jewish. He hated all of it. He wanted to destroy its impact. Marx was the same way. All of these people hated Christianity and they wanted to destroy it. So they come up with an alternate viewpoint. Uh, Darwin, uh, so, so many people in the church start assuming, well, they must know what they're talking about, so let's throw out the Bible. Rather than 
They, they do the same thing Eve did, rather than going to God and saying, well, God, what do you say? They just automatically assume, well, God must be wrong. The Bible must be wrong because people inherently don't want the Bible to be true because that means they're going to be held accountable for their sin. Historical science is not neutral. Their starting position is to ignore God. Lyell's starting position was we need to get rid of Moses. Everything, we can figure it all out without the Bible. And so on a pagan worldview, there's no such thing as a creator. Uh, nature sustains itself. Creation sustains itself by itself. So weak and man is just a product of, of time plus chance. He's just an accident. So everything is always working according to these same same standards. Biblical worldview, God's the ultimate authority. Uh, the Bible is God's revelation to man. The Bible is true. God is the creator. Everything else is a creation. And so we have to take, we have to go to God's word first. And so there we have the timeline, creation of perfect world until sin, and then ancient world, and then the present world. What happens is people fall apart on the concept of sin. They don't like the concept of sin. It makes us accountable. So is there physical evidence in modern-day geology to confirm uniformitarianism? Absolutely not. There's catastrophic things all the time, volcanoes and earthquakes and floods. Not only that, there's physical evidence that maybe their understanding of the, the layers laid down over millions of years, which means it's extremely slow, that, that they would say that, that these layers are laid down millions of years before there are any human beings. Well, what about fossil fuels? What about fossil fuels? What are fossil fuels? Fossil fuels are like gas, natural gas, oil, and coal. And so you can go to places where there are coal mines and here we have a picture. Can you see that well enough? This is like a, a, a small uh, mortar or something that you would uh, uh, melt, maybe melt something in, and it has spouts on on each side of it. And this was found in a 200-million-year-old coal seam. It happened by accident. It evolved in the coal. It's just amazing what can happen if you give, give something enough time. Anything can happen. This is even better. This is a bronze bell that was found in a 300 million year old coal seam in Pennsylvania. Notice the metallurgy there, the metal work, how it's fashioned. You've got this, this idol type figure at the top. Some human being designed that and uh, dug down, I don't know how deep into the ground to find coal and buried it there just to fool us. Isn't that amazing? Now, Henry Morris was a, he had his PhD in hydrology, which is the effects of water on things and flooding and things like that. He was an engineer. He taught at Rice here for a while when he was here, 1950, 51, 52. He went to Baraka Church. Then he went from here to 
uh, Virginia Polytechnic Institute where he was on the faculty there. Now, this is, in, I haven't ever looked it up exactly to see where it is, but I've been told it's in western Western Virginia in the coal mining area. And so they had coal miners in the church, and they told him uh, back in the 50s, they said, whenever we discover something like this, and he, he's the one who's a source of these pictures, that, that whenever we discover something like this, they shut the whole mine down. Everybody has to come out. Nobody can say anything, and everything is roped off uh, for weeks until the Smithsonian Institute can come in, and they they come in, and then they take everything that was there, and it disappears. Remember that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? And there's the big warehouse, and there's all these boxes, and somewhere deep in this cavern, there's a box, and it begins to burn from the inside out. Yeah, that's that's the idea. These things are there, there's evidence there, but it's being buried, and that's what Lyell did. But Lyell used his wealth uh, to endow colleges on the condition that they would uh, never teach anything about the Bible, never teach about anything that contradicted any of his theories. John 2, 6 to 7. See, when they, things are created, they have the appearance of age. And here we have Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. That's a lot of water. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Pause here. Who created the water? And Jesus said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, every man at the beginning sets out good wine and when the guests get drunk... I corrected the translation. Then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. I mean, everybody's getting pretty pretty roasted here, and now you're coming along, and uh, you're giving them the good wine. So it's good wine. Jesus turned the water into wine. He still turns water into wine every day. It just takes a little longer. But he did this in just a couple of seconds. Later on, he he is indicting the Pharisees, and he said, if you believed Moses, and what he's implying is you don't really believe Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. You would believe what he wrote about me. The problem is they don't really believe what's in the Old Testament. And this isn't something new. He says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So now we come to a biblical perspective uh, of the global flood. What, what should we do? How should we deal with this? What does the Bible actually say? We go to Genesis 1, 6 to 8, which I referred to earlier. And there God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So you have the diagram up here. There's uh, upper waters and then the sky or the atmosphere and lower waters. Now, there are some scientists who are creation scientists, Russell Humphreys, who worked out at Sandia Labs, uh, for many, many years working uh, working there on lots of scientific research for the government. 
uh, is a well-known physicist, and he's written a book on, called Starlight in Time. He argues that the universe is expanding and that when God created it, it was, it was close. And that the waters are, were out from the earth and it's expanding and that it's these waters that are not just a canopy around the earth, but that they are a, they're further out and that, that's where the waters came from. Now there's a lot of discussion about this. I think I mentioned, uh, Jody Dillow's, uh, doctoral dissertation at Dallas. He had an engineering background and what he discovered with all of his calculations and everything that if there was a water vapor canopy around the earth, everything would have roasted it very quickly. So that, that idea, which was popular back in the sixties, just really doesn't work. So God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament. That would be the earthly waters, the rivers, salt water, oceans. Um, from the waters that were above the firmament, which is the basically the atmosphere, and uh, he called the firmament heaven. Okay, so somewhere out beyond heaven was this other layer of water. Whatever that means, I can't tell you. Genesis 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The order is important here. There, something you should have learned, I learned it in ninth grade physical science. What is the cycle of water? Evaporation. And then it's water vapor. And then it uh, goes up into the atmosphere. And then there's condensation. What is necessary for water vapor to condense? A particle of dust or something. It, something solid as to that it forms and condenses around. So when you have the fountains of the deep, all of these um, volcanoes exploding, all of the earth above the water and below the water, what are they? What's it throwing up into the air? An incredible amount of ash, on which water vapor can condense and precipitate. So the mechanic, the physical mechanics of this are, are very clear here. The fountains of the great deep were broken up, the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So as a result of the tectonic shifts, you have the raising of mountains and valleys lowered, um, and uh, we read in Psalm 104.6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. This is talking about the Noahic flood. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place where you founded them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over. Doesn't matter how many icebergs melt. God has set a boundary that they may not return to cover the earth. You then have cooler atmospheric temperatures. And in these cooler atmospheric uh, temperature, waters rushed off the land with a great speed and force as uh, as the mountains go up. And then... Uh, one of the other things that happened with the flood is you have this volcanic ash uh, in the atmosphere 
that blocks the sun, so it makes everything uh, much, much cooler. When Krakatoa went off, the ash in the upper atmosphere caused the temperature to drop one degree over the whole earth. It cooled the earth. So when Mount St. Helens exploded, the dust was so bad they could barely see, uh, I mean, anybody could barely see their hands. A week later, they, there was one couple that was trapped there, and the woman wrote about this. She said she couldn't even see her hands in front of her face. The ash was so thick. And a week later, they finally drove, were able to drive out. But every 30 minutes, they had to stop the car and clean out the air filter because it was getting clogged with all the ash. So the ash from Mount St. Helens covered the earth within two weeks. That's one volcano. And you had thousands of volcanoes going off at the beginning of the, uh, of the flood. And so this ash would cover the earth and it reflect the sunlight away from the earth. And so the earth would get uh, pretty cold. And so these, all of these things were going on and the eruptions were continuing uh, throughout this time. So the episode at Mount St. Helens uh, shows how fast the ash can spread. And uh, it, was, it was just went everywhere. Uh, and so what happens then is warm waters uh, that are heated by the volcanoes are giving off steam, so the water's about 90 degrees, and that rendered the carbon dioxide level pretty high, and the water's churning all over the earth. Carbon dioxide was really high. How could it sustain life? That's what the environmentalists say today. We've got to keep it down. But it's not that it's not that high. It hasn't really really changed. So temperature on the Earth would have been affected by the collapse of this this water out there. So the waters of heaven had kept the the Earth somewhat uh, stable in terms of its of its temperature. Now with the warmer oceans, as you go deeper into the Earth's mantle, the temperature gets higher. This is on your um, page there, um, um, page, I don't know what page it is in your, in your notes, but um, it, it's the, uh, under C. They say it, it, it's probable that after the flood, the oceans would have been much warmer than they are now for two reasons. Number one, as you go deeper into the Earth's crust, it gets hotter. So you had all this volcanic activity that, that heated up the water. And uh, that's the that's the second reason. So the fountains of the deep, the erupting volcanoes, all raise the temperature of the water. So this is the diagram. Lava heats up the ground. Lava heats up the water, and the result is it puts up this this um, ash cloud. This sets the stage for an ice age. And so you need warm water and uh, moist air to hit. Uh, the cold air in the upper atmosphere to form ice. And as a result of that, the ice comes down and it would have covered uh, the poles first and dropped down. So the ice ages, there was a really unstable atmosphere and, and weather for probably about a thousand years after, after the flood. Think about that. And and we, I think we're still seeing a lot of climate change today. It's like, let's say you took a 200-ton boulder and dropped it into uh, a rather sizable pond. 
that right near the, the center where the rock hits the water are going to be the tallest waves. There are going to be shorter distances between the tops of the waves, but as it goes, spreads out from the center, the distance between the tops of the waves gets greater and the waves are less high and the valleys are less low. That's like the flood hits the earth and it has this massive impact on the climate. And the climate is just going crazy the first 100, 200 years, and then it gradually levels out. So in those first 200 years, you're getting huge temperature variance, and that's when you create these these ice ages. And the further away you get from the time of the flood, the more it levels out. And the climate change we see today is way out from that center, which is 5,000 years ago, but it still has these fluctuations. But you can't talk about that because nobody believes in the flood, nobody believes in the Bible, and so they operate on a false assumption. So to create an ice age, you need continental uplift, three things, continental uplift, cooler atmosphere, and uniformly warm oceans, which then uh, helps to create this ice age. One creation scientist uh, estimates that this ice age would have lasted about 700 years. So if the flood occurs about... I'm just throwing out a general number here, but probably about, oh, about 30. Well, if you go with the Masoretic text numbers, about 3200 B.C. If you go with the Septuagint numbers, it would be about 4300 B.C. And so it goes 700 years. So, so that, you know, by then you're into the time of who? Let's say it's 3200. 700 years later, it's 2500. You're... Um, you're, you're getting close to the birth of Abraham, right? That's about 2,200. So there would have been a lot of uh, large, frequent snowfalls in many areas. Uh, there would have been longer and colder winter periods and shorter and milder warm seasons or growing seasons. And many parts of the north and south would have experienced larger, much larger polar ice caps and glaciers than what we have today. Job 38, 29, and 30 says... From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. So here's their graphic in the book where you have warm ocean, you have uh, warm, moist air, goes up over the mountains, it hits the uh, cool air, uh, condenses and snows, and that's what sets it all up. Now, here's just a couple of things the Scripture says. I know it's getting late, but I want to go through about three or four more slides, and I'm done. I'm still not finishing Lesson 5. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan. Remember this episode in Genesis 13? Abraham has his nephew Lot, and they they have huge flocks and herds. They have each have a, a 150, 200 uh, shepherds and, and uh, cattlemen working for them, but they don't get along. So they're have, they're, they they got to separate because their their employees don't uh, work well together, and so Abraham says, "Take your pick, anywhere in the land. You pick where you want to go, and then I'll take the rest." So Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But look at that. It was well watered everywhere. Now, a lot of you have been with me to Israel, and you've been down uh, along the Dead Sea, and you've gone down to Beersheba and Arad, and you've gone further south uh, to a number of places uh, down towards Elat. The one phrase you would never use to describe anything there is well watered. It's not watered at all. It is as dry as a bone. But So something changed. There's been climate change. What caused it? The flood. So Abraham, these dates are wrong, and, and I, I, was, I didn't catch this till later. I'm not sure where they got these dates, but Abraham is roughly about 2,200 to about uh, 2,000. And uh, Isaac is about 20, uh, maybe 20, 2100 to 2050 uh, to about the time they, that th- this, this number for his birth, 1897. Then Jacob is a little bit after that. So I've got to correct that slide. Uh, but there's about 300 years between Abraham and Jacob. And they had these huge famines. Remember the f- seven years of famine, uh, of plenty, and then the seven years of famine? And it and it's just it affects the whole Middle East, and before that it, it, there was no no famine, no drought at all, and this affects everything, all of North Africa, all of the Levant, everything, and so uh, I mean it's an it's an incredible famine. All of the land of Egypt was famished. Nothing is growing. Eventually, there's going to be a coming global final judgment, and this is Revelation 20, 11 to 12, and this is the great white throne judgment. And this judgment at the flood is just just the beginning in the past, and there will be a coming global judgment. And actually, that finishes the lesson. So we made it. All right, anybody have any questions? I know y'all just want to go home and kick back and watch some TV show. Father, thank you for this time to uh, go through this material to demonstrate that there are uh, historical and scientific reasons to uh, believe in the accuracy of what you have revealed in your word. But that accuracy of your word is determined uh, apart from the, the evidence. But there is evidence. You do not do things in a vacuum. There's always evidence. And um, so, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that we can um, recognize this and realize that there are some real problems with the alternative views that just don't fit science and they don't fit history. And, Father, we pray that all of this makes us realize that just as there was a judgment for sin in the past, there will be a future judgment for all unbelievers in the future. And that the, the crying need for today is evangelism, and so that people will not have eternal punishment, but they will be saved, uh, saved from eternal punishment by the death of Christ on the cross and believing in him. We pray that we might recognize the importance of that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.